Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reading The Husband Plot by Katherine Grant. This was published in 2021 very recently and we did receive a free advanced reader copy from Booksprout. This is also the third in the Countess Chronicles and we did review the second last summer. Uh, so if you're interested in the series, you can uh, flip back and take a look. I will link to it on our uh, Instagram. So, The way the characters are interconnected, I think, is a little bit unique as compared mm -hmm. to other romance novels. It's often a group of siblings or a group of friends or a group of people who have a definitive thing in common. Mm -hmm. We're so far, what's linked to the series is the first book is about a groom leaving his fiance effectively at the altar. No, that's actually the, the one half. So no. the first book is about a, a debutante who goes to town and it's, it's Catherine Grant's take on a love triangle, right? With the bad boy and the cinnamon roll and she makes sure that the cinnamon roll wins out and the bad boy is a real bad boy. So it's kind of fun if you're looking for that. And then after that comes what Lane said. So it's about a woman who gets left at the altar. Sort and of. And that book Not is actually the about the love story between the guy doing the leaving at the altar and the woman he left her for. Right. The third book is about a friend of the woman who was left at the altar. Well, it's the a, second book, the second full novel, yes, is about novel is about a is about a friend of the woman who was left at the altar and the sister of the woman in the first book. Right, and then the groom is a friend of the groom who did the leaving at the altar. Yes, and then this book, the third book in the series, is about the girl left at the altar in book one point five. So it's yes. not like a group of people who like at the beginning you're like, okay, so this group with a random ass nickname is going to be who the four books are about. Like, I don't know how long the series is inherently going to be because each book introduces like new subplots and side characters. Exactly. Yeah. It's not like the wallflowers, you know, where right. it's these four friends who meet in the first book. It's not about a family, you know, like, yes, there are some family relationships, but they're, they're only two sisters and they're, they both got married. So that's done. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're right. I, I like, I like that. And it's, it feels more real, like real mm -hmm. to life as well, because, I mean, as much as I love reading about a group of four friends who are all going to get married, you know, I, I feel like that doesn't happen in real life all that often. Actually. Honestly, I don't know how long this series is going to go because mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you. I can tell you who I think book four might be about, but I can't predict beyond that. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, even in the first book, the the heroine of the second book is actually married. So it, and she becomes a widow in between. So you don't realize that the next book is going to be about her. So so it could be anyone, Lane. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I think it's Robert. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, after hearing us talk in a very convoluted fashion about the series, we should probably talk about this book specifically. So. I'll, I'll start out with the jacket. What could go wrong when you marry someone you have never met? Elizabeth Dawes would rather not end up a spinster. After her first fiance leaves her at the altar, she agrees to marry Adrian Hathorne, sight unseen. 
She doesn't expect much from her new husband since he plans to leave for Jamaica within the year, but she does hope for friendship and freedom to pursue her own interests. Adrian Hathorne wants to be above reproach. He doesn't indulge in any of the usual gentlemanly pursuits, nor does he chase after any women. When his father writes from Jamaica with instructions to marry as soon as possible, he does as asked. It's only after the wedding that he realizes he doesn't really know how to be a husband, especially not to a blue-stocking wife with so many of her own ideas. Divorce is not an option, which means Lisbeth and Adrian need to find common ground before their marriage of convenience goes up in smoke. Just when they have discovered they don't disagree with each other over everything, another letter arrives from Jamaica with news neither of them expected. News that will test every aspect of their fledgling marriage. I don't have any objections to this jacket. I don't have any objections to this jacket, except I will say that it does not address the conflict at all. Right. I, I, I don't know if you need it to or not. Uh, I mean, we're, I, spoiler alert for our episode, we're going to be talking about the conflict a lot. Because to us, it was probably one of the most interesting parts of the of the novel. But I would say if you so basically, if you have not seen the cover of this novel, you would not know from reading the jacket that Adrian is of mixed race. There was nothing in the jacket that I felt was inaccurate. I agree. But you're right that it doesn't address the most important thing about the book, which is his mixed race and the difficulties that presents for him in navigating the British society he lives in. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I understand, I, I think I understand where Catherine Grant is coming from or, or whoever wrote the jacket is coming from to maybe make that not the point of the book jacket. Right. At the same time, it's such an integral part of the novel and of their relationship that it, it seems odd not to mention it. Yeah, I, I don't quite understand why it was left out. Right. But but anyway, I, I mean, I thought it was fascinating. And to, to be completely honest, we did not write it in our 15-word summaries either. So. Yeah. I can't, I can't cast, can't cast stones when I live in a glass house, as they say. <laughs> what does your 15 word summary touch on, Meg? Well, it says, Lisbeth and Adrian meet at the altar by choice. No big surprise, both have secrets. So I think you get at the core trope, which is marriage of convenience. Correct. And the fact that people getting married in that circumstance often don't know each other. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, they don't know each other, even if they have, I mean, this one is a pretty intense marriage of convenience because they literally meet for the first time. Like they literally see each other's faces for the first time at the altar. But even in any other marriage of convenience, even if they don't meet at the altar, they still maybe have met two or three times before. So. Right. Anyway, so what is your 15 word summary? Woman seeks marriage to provide her with independence. Man seeks one that will provide inheritance. And so yours really got to the motivation that each had. Right. So 
as we said in our convoluted introduction to the series, she's been through one engagement already. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she decides for honestly reasons that I thought were a little weak, but ultimately I thought were fun enough that I didn't care that a marriage of convenience with a guy who's going to be gone is actually her best bet. Mm -hmm. And he finds out from his father who is ailing that he is unlikely to be able to inherit the family business, even though he's the only male heir because he's mixed race and black people have no rights in Jamaica, but Mm -hmm. because he's not black enough, I guess like this book really gets into it on race issues. His father can petition to have him basically legally declared white. Basically. Yeah. So part of the reason he wants a white English bride ASAP and is willing to agree to pretty much anything is Lisbeth is super respectable. She's a daughter of a peer. Mm-hmm. And so the clout that marrying her gives in terms of proving his legitimate Englishness and whiteness is superlative. Mm-hmm. And that's what he needs so he can go back to Jamaica and take over his land. Yeah. So he's like, I don't really care what she's getting out of this relationship because what I need is to marry a highborn white lady, basically. Yeah. And she's excited for the idea that she won't be shackled down with some guy who's going to make demands on her and limit her because her great secret and the reason this heiress and Pierre's daughter is having such trouble finding a husband is because she's a blue stocking who's outspoken and doesn't care about scandal, even though from what we can gather, she's never actually caused a scandal. Well, I mean, she was involved in the scandal because her fiancé left her for another woman. But it hasn't caused, I mean, it hasn't really hit as a scandal yet because she's like, I'm not, if she had gone back unattached to the season, she probably would have been embroiled in a little more scandal. But right now she's like, you know what, I'll just marry this guy. Then I, I just mean her, that. like, blue-stocking streak and political opinions haven't caused a scandal. Correct. That is also true. They, they act like these things are such scandalous characteristics, but we haven't. she hasn't seen them born to light in her life yet. Yeah. Well, that's, that's actually one of the things I loved about this book was the portrayal of Lisbeth mm-hmm. about how she she has all these ideals and she's like yeah they're totally scandalous and I'm a scandalous lady but she actually do, she actually hasn't done anything to cause a scandal or even cause herself discomfort necessarily yeah I thought it was really interesting because the book he reflected a lot on his race and she learned a lot about what navigating the upper, upper echelon of society as a black man means mm-hmm. but I actually thought the one place where the book pulled its punches was in her navigating her family mm-hmm. and her own prejudices. Yeah. Like she says, I knew you were one eighth black before I married you, but she doesn't reflect at all about what that might mean for her. Like even if right. she consciously says that doesn't matter to me, her parents don't say to her, are you sure you want to back out because marrying a black man will forever be associated with your reputation Mm -hmm. they just say do you want to back out so I did think that was the one place I thought otherwise a lot of the racial reckoning stuff in this book was to this white girl's opinion like thought-provoking and overall pretty well done Mm -hmm. 
but I did think that the most critical it got of society in terms of people who were racist were like the bad guys and tangential people who didn't actually have any character development. That's true. I mean, Elizabeth herself, I guess for me, I, I know people like this who really don't have any personal racism and maybe feel like, Oh, you know, I, I am so enlightened Right. And then they have to realize that, okay, just because I personally don't think that, you know, this does affect me in some ways. Oh, definitely. I I just found her, I found her authentic in that way. I found that authentic. Like Uh this idea that she didn't realize how closed minded the people in her society were, but she had to know some people would be. So even, even if she had the thought of, okay, I recognize I'm marrying a black man. There will pe- there are people who will cut me off for that, but those people don't matter, and it won't be most people. But yeah. even if she mistakenly had that belief, but the fact that there were no conversations between her and her parents, and no interior monologue from her about it at all, I did think was a way to try to make it make racism as palatable as possible in this wider context, in the sense that okay, we'll give all the racist ideas, and frankly, any sort of evaluation of race as a risk to only the black character and the bad guys. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I completely agree, but I do see where you're coming from though. No, it wasn't, I liked this book overall, like very much. So I don't, I don't mean this to come off as overly critical. Right. Um, all right. So <laughs> we talked about the major trope, which is marriage of convenience. What are the other tropes? Um, a waltz and a garden fondle, TM. TM Lane from Plotris. <laughs> <laughs> and then they do kidnap. There's a kidnapping. And they kidnap the wrong person. I could not with that. I mean, I couldn't, but I also was like, ah, oh, such a tried and true trope. Yep. I was just like, yeah, and no one's going to recognize. These women do not have the same body. It's not going to be revealed till the bag is pulled off the head. Of course. I'm so here for it. <laughs> right? I loved it. Uh, there is a side character who's in love with their servant. I am so here for these tropes all the time. I love, like, the little background romances and the, like, longing looks. And then it's even better when it sort of comes to fruition in the same novel. Like, we've talked about how much we like this before mm-hmm. yes oh and she's so we, we've talked about the fact that Elizabeth is a blue stocking right but she's somebody with a body type that isn't de rigueur oh, and right. so one of the first things she does as a married lady is she gets sent these dresses that an aunt actually had custom made for her. Right. As opposed to her old clothes, which weren't, it's not like Penelope Featherington levels of hideous, but (laughs) her original wardrobe was like all the fashionable pieces for a debutante in her first season, sort of awkwardly altered to fit her body, but they like weren't styles that were good for her body. Mm -hmm. So they talk about her having like broad shoulders. So her, married wardrobe is a lot of daring off the shoulder tops that really show off her expansive skin and she has matching turbans for her dresses I mean we have talked 
I don't know if we've talked on air about this, but we have certainly talked about our favorite fashion eras and what what Lane and I would need in different eras. So I do sympathize with this. You know, she needs something that (laughs) makes her look good and feel good. No, I am so excited for her, but I do think it's funny. Like we, some romance novels are implicit and others are explicit about the ways in which marriage restricted and granted women different freedoms. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times, especially when you're reading a book about a relatively young bride who didn't Mm -hmm. have many seasons, um, clothes are one way that married women were treated really differently mm-hmm. than unmarried ones. And so I think a really dramatic married woman wardrobe change is used as a plot device intentionally to show this additional level of autonomy and reduce societal scrutiny in terms of appropriate behavior. Yeah. But it's yeah. just fun when it's done in the form of, and these are the clothes. Yes. Uh, and then there is, there's the final trope, which I, I like to call the the Disney's Beauty and the Beast trope, which is the the library trope, right? And this is in this is in a lot of books, and I think it works partly because the people who are consuming these are readers. Obviously, they are reading books, and so what do we want? We want a library like that that you open the doors and it's just this gorgeous you know, humongous library and has all the books you would ever want. So that's, that's what Elizabeth wants. She really wants a library. And what I love is Adrian doesn't have it, Mm -hmm. but he gives her carte blanche to build it. Yes. And one, like talk about virtue signaling. We are readers. Readers of romance novels are inherently readers but also when you've got a woman who's constantly being criticized for being a blue stocking, there's no quicker way for her partner to show she, that he's supportive of her intellectual interests than not just supporting her in reading and building a library, but like entrusting her with the building of that library. Mm-hmm. So good. It, the most recent other example I can think of, and I, I think I'm probably thinking of it too, because the last names are so similar was Gideon Hawthorne in When a Rogue Meets His Match. Yep. Uh-huh. I mean, he doesn't even, like, read very well, right? He was raised on the streets and he can't read. <laughs> and he still buys for a library. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I, I thought a lot of the way tropes were used in this book, I thought was also really effective. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I thought it was really intentional. It didn't take the place of explicit communication and commentary. Right. But it really enhanced it. So, like, overall, A-plus use of tropes. Good job, Catherine Grant. Good job. Okay, so I have I have a humongous note about slavery and Britain and the Regency and romance novels. So I'm just going to get into it because this is something that's actually been on my mind probably in the past three months. Lane knows this because we talk every single week and read books, but also because I had a huge, I talked about it in our offline book club. So I was reading a fiction book called A Declaration of the Rights of Magicians, which is set during the French Revolution, but with magic, which if you've been listening to the podcast, you know, is basically my niche genre. Give me historical era and add magic to it and I will read the shit out of that book. Uh, But anyway, this book really looks a lot at the slave trade and slavery in the era. 
Uh, and that's when this is something that I think I knew about, but didn't really think hard about uh, until I'd read it. And then also watching Bridgerton brought it up as well because of the uh, characters of color and, you know, what would their status really have been? Is it, you know, anyway. Uh, so the slave trade was actually abolished in 1807, but slavery was not abolished until 1833. So when we're reading the Regency historical romances that we love so much, they usually take place in an era where slavery is still a thing. And in many of the books, slavery, I mean, the slave trade is still a thing as well. It's actually still going on. And <laughs> one of the big things things in historical romance is the decline of the aristocracy. So especially if you're reading Victorian romance and you're looking at how I, I'm specifically thinking of uh, Lisa Kleypas actually, and um, like the wallflowers and whatever, the rise of industrialism and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, which tracks with sort of the decline of the aristocracy. If you really look at the dates of that, it kind of tracks with, first the abolition of the slave trade and then the abolition of slavery. And so the aristocracy was really benefiting from slavery and the slave trade. Uh, and so if you're looking at an impoverished noble family, it is probably because most of their assets were in one of the Caribbean islands where the slave trade took place. Um, also specifically the sugar trade, sugar was a huge thing. Uh, I mean, before 1807, um, some people estimate that 80% of all income from imports and exports in the British Empire came from slave labor or the slave trade itself. Mm -hmm. So, which is, I mean, it's huge when you think about it. Like, you think about the British Empire, you don't think, oh, this is an empire that benefited from slavery. You might think about colonialism, you might think about India and, you know, other abuses, but a lot of times you don't think about slavery for some reason. I'm not sure why that is. I mean, my best guess is that most of enslaved people in the British, most of the enslaved people in the British Empire weren't in the UK. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. America certainly has it, racial issues, and I'm not making any sort of defense here, but to a degree, most people who are living in the United States today have a visual reminder of some kind of slavery and the relic of slavery in their everyday life, whether it's a civil war marker on a highway or, I mean, I'm not saying it's significant. I'm not saying we do enough to commemorate it, but there's a lived reality of this is a country built by slaves that we can observe. Right. And I think the United Kingdom, while you know, I don't know enough about the history of domestic slavery within the UK, it's at least not common enough that it comes up in romance novels. It's not like we see maids as slaves or house servants as slaves. That's so true. I, I think if, if there's a reason it gets forgotten culturally, and this is a total stab in the dark and a guess, that would be my guess as to why. Because it's not like the country was filled with ports of slave ships and that sort of thing. Like it was benefiting from slavery every day. But the lived reality of a lot of people, it would have been very easy to ignore. Yeah, no, exactly. And then this is honestly the first romance novel I have ever read that examines slavery as it relates to the character's wealth and status. Um, so that was something I really appreciated. Yeah. And uh, something that I've been, again, has been on my mind for a while. And so I, I really liked that. 
I thought that was, it was also interesting. They really didn't do a whole lot of discussion of the law as it tied mm-hmm. to slavery beyond Adrian's inheritance. I actually could have done with a lot more exposition in the text. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think it didn't serve a purpose or wasn't there. Uh, but I, if she'd wanted to go on some historical diatribe, I wouldn't have minded it. Yeah. I, for me personally, so for me as a reader, I didn't need it. And I, she does have a pretty extensive bibliography at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can read more about it then if you want to. Um, mm-hmm. For for me, apparently the way I, <laughs> I kind of joke about this, but anyway, I, if for me to feel real pain for real issues, apparently I have to read about fake people experiencing that pain. Like if I have to read a nonfiction book about slavery, I'll read it and I will absorb the information. But if I read a fictionalized account of something that happened to someone, uh, an enslaved person, for example, it will hit me harder in the, the emotions, I, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that that's, that's me. I know that that's not the same for everyone, but it's very helpful for me as a, as a reader and as, as a person assimilating information. I mentioned this earlier, but one of the things I appreciated was that Elizabeth is an outspoken progressive, right? I'm using progressive as a catch-all term, even though I realize this is not the term that would have been used at the time, just letting you know. Right. Uh, but so she's she's like, I'm an abolitionist. I don't believe in slavery, which that's great. Of course, that is the moral stance. But she doesn't know any enslaved people. She really doesn't know anyone of any other race until she marries Adrian at the altar. <laughs> um, so I felt like her, I guess it was sort of an awakening as an, as an ally. And, you know, what, what are, how can she put her ideals into action in the most effective way? Uh, and I, I liked that. And again, this is coming at it as a white woman who is much more similar to Elizabeth than to any of the other characters of color in the book. Mm-hmm. But I... Any of the other. Any of the colors. the only one. That's true. That's true. Well, there, I mean, yes. There is a, someone who comes in selling a tract, but... Right. I mean, there, yeah. there, are, there are passing references to other people, be, but not anyone in their society. Mm-hmm. Not any like a name and character development. Like no, I wouldn't call any of the other characters in this yeah. book a person of color. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so I, I just felt it was very compelling as someone who maybe feels like she has to walk that line as well, or who has had to learn those lessons in the past. Yeah, and I also thought the book pretty explicitly compares the plight of women in society to Mm. slaves Mm -hmm. sometimes in a a way that I think made both characters think and other times in a way that was insensitive and called out in the text Mm -hmm. the moment where Elizabeth is pissed off and she says what are you going to do to me treat me like your slaves yeah and that leads to a conversation between the two of them because clearly that overstepped and she was speaking uh, it's something she didn't really have the ability or right to speak on. Mm-hmm. But then there's a conversation where 
Adrian himself is a secret abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's not, uh, the text does not hide that from the reader, but it takes the characters a long time to talk about it. And at one point, he's, there's a, there's drama involving someone's marriage. And preventing this woman from entering into this marriage she does not want to be a part of could potentially jeopardize his ability to free his slaves. Mm-hmm. And he literally thinks about, like, it's the exchange of one life for ten. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really understand or attempt to fix the problem. That was sort of the only moment in the text where I didn't like Adrian, and I don't necessarily feel like he ended up absolved. Mm-hmm. Like, his strategy was really, this is a problem I'm not going to fix. Yeah, well, and I thought it was a really interesting intersection between racism and male privilege. Right. Because, yes, Adrian definitely has suffered prejudice because of his race. But he also has certain privileges because of his sex. So, yeah, did did I like Adrian in that moment? No, but I thought it was, I thought it was a very interesting part of the narrative. Oh, definitely. But I felt like Lisbeth did more through the narrative to empathetically learn about the difficulties of being black. Mm-hmm. In a way, Adrian really didn't to learn about the risks faced by women. Right. Like, I don't think he showed the same growth in that regard. That's fair. So what did you think? think of Adrian's motives because that in your summary you say he's getting married for his inheritance which he is uh, I I actually really liked the nuances for his reasons for entering into the marriage of convenience no I really liked it too I think my only frustration with it was I, I kind of don't understand why he wasn't more forthcoming about it he doesn't hide it. It's not really a point of drama in the marriage. So, like, I'm not going to harp on it because I, I thought it was handled fine. But he doesn't explicitly say to her, there's this law, there's this case, and that's why I'm seeking a bride on this timeline. Yes. He the, figures it out. It's not a point of conflict. Like I said, I'm, like, I'm not trying to overblow it. Right. I. It was very interesting because there were moments... Again, this is a pet peeve of both of ours when we read romances is when there's the communication issue and that's what you base the conflict on. Mm-hmm. And there were times where I was like, oh, come on, Adrian, just tell her. And then I was like, you know what? Lisbeth has already shown herself to be extremely impulsive. And I was like, actually, I kind of get what Adrian's not just being super forthcoming here. Yeah. It didn't, I think if it had been the actual source of the plot conflict, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have liked it. But I think the way it was deployed here, I understood why he got married and I understood why he was revealing things in the order and the way in which he was. Yeah. And also, guys, um, I we didn't put this under tropes because why not just leave it for a little extra surprise at the end? Adrian is a little, he's a, he's a virgin hero. Um, why is he a virgin hero, Lane? Because, because as a black man in society, he felt like he had to be impeccable Mm -hmm. to be taken one tenth as seriously as his white peers. Exactly. So total, we've talked about this, that 
I think the reason that I like Virgin Heroes is because they get more character development, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes. I was like, this makes so much sense. Thank you, Adrian. I don't know. I loved it. They were cute little virgin babies on their wedding night. They really were. They really were. All right. Any Anything else you want to mention before we move to any content warnings? I don't think so. I, I think the only thing I'll say is we, we've done a lot of talking about heavier topics than I feel like we usually do because this book handles some heavier topics than a lot of romance novels do. And so I don't want to shortchange. The love story between the two of them is very cute. Yes. I get why they came to like each other. I get why they were so well suited. I loved her independent streak. I love his reserved streak. Like, I don't think it's necessarily coming through how much I genuinely liked this book as a romance novel, not just as a progressive piece of literature. Yeah. Like, this is a cute book with a cute love story, first and foremost. Yeah. What did you, what did you think of when she wanted to buy her book? I don't. I want to Google. I don't understand what this store was. And I also, yeah, so she tries to buy a, a book from a shop that won't serve women. Basically, yeah. And then what she's ended up buying is like the sailor's version of the Kama Sutra. <laughs> I mean, basically she bought an erotic novel. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I thought that was, I think that scene did a lot to show the character development of everyone. Yeah. Involved. Yeah. I thought it was a really useful scene. Yeah. I don't know. I just bring it up because it's an example of like a, a more fun scene. Yes. Um, basically, she's walking by this shop and she sees this beautiful book, which is basically a romance novel, like a clinch cover, right? <laughs> she's like, I want that book. <laughs> and then she goes in and the guy won't sell it to her. And she's like, give me the goddamn book, you know? But she also attempts to wield her class privilege to get it. Mm-hmm. Once I, like, I don't mean to make it serious because this book, these scenes were not serious, but she's like, do you know who my father is? Do you know who my husband's family is? And you're not going to sell me this book? Call the watch. Make a policeman put his hands on a noble lady. Do it. It it actually reminded me reminded me of my you know my favorite author Lois McMaster Bujold. She wrote that in Barrier. There's the scene where she goes to buy the sword stick. Yep. She's like, I want to buy the sword stick, and the guy's like, I can't sell it to you. And she's like, Oh really? Because my husband is Lord Burkos again. And he's like, Oh, I guess I can sell it to you. Yeah. <laughs> and she th- she thinks in her head, Oh yes, the appeal to the useless authority. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it made me think of that a lot. <laughs> I liked it. Bye. I liked it. Okay, okay, moving on. Content warnings. I mean, I think we sort of covered everything that could be triggering to someone. There's a woman who is potentially going to be married off against her will. There's discussion of the treatment of enslaved people and the lack of rights of people of African descent in the colonies. There is, we mentioned it in tropes, there's a kidnapping of a character. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is some violence, but there's no implied rape, which is always good. (laughs) Bare minimum. (laughs) You know? Good job. I I just want to point out that there is also a queer character 
uh, in the novel, but I think it's handled pretty well. So, um, yeah, look, look, this book was trying to do so much and nothing in that whole sequence of events read as a problematic to me. So like, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's what I'm saying is like, if there's nothing in there, like we were like, yeah, there's a kidnapping, but we're like, eh, you know, <laughs> You know, it was it was pretty well done. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, sexiness, Lane. I thought the depiction of virgin babies having fun was accurate. Yes. That, to a degree, kept it from being, like, the sexiest thing I've ever read. Yes. And I will say, we talked about there was this, like, book of erotica, and they're like, let's use it. And then they only describe that they have used it. Those scenes aren't actually on the page. I wouldn't have minded one scene where they read it and did it, like, on the page. Can I tell you the two scenes that were mentioned in passing that I was like, no, now you've gone and done it? Yes. In a carriage anywhere they went. Mm-hmm. What? There are no carriage sex scenes in this book. Is that there's a, a little? There's a carriage makeout, but that's all. Did I say there's nothing that happens in a carriage? <laughs> I did not. Um, oh. And two, they talk about getting it on at his desk mm-hmm. in the study. Mm-hmm. Okay, that needs to not be a passing reference. <laughs> For the rest of it, treated as a montage where you just describe the situation. I'm kind of glad I didn't have to read about her first blowjob. Yeah. But, um, I, I'm sorry, you mentioned carriage sex in passing, but you don't actually show me carriage sex. <laughs> that said, this waltz and garden fondle was a very sexy waltz and garden fondle. I mean, yeah. Just saying. It was pretty good (laughs) (laughs) also I want to say this is somewhat of a spoiler but only for the sex the fact that the last scene of the book the last paragraph is them having sex in the epilogue I was like you know what Catherine Grant I see you Well, I don't have anything else to say really about the book itself. I do want to mention that the author's note does include the bibliography used for research. So check it out if you're interested in the research done um, specifically about like inheritance law in Jamaica, stuff like that. I will also, I'm going to go ahead and recommend the following fiction in case like me, you need fake people to make you feel real pain. Um, so I already mentioned a declaration of the rights of magicians. That's by H.G. Perry. Uh, Mary Robinette Kowal wrote, uh, again, this is fa- gas lamp fantasy. So she wrote Regency fantasies. But in two of her books, she really explored um, characters of color. So one book is called Without a Summer and the other one is called Of Noble Birth. And both of them um, explore a lot of the same themes as this one. Uh, And then there's another book called A Respectable Trade. This is by Philippa Gregory. She's the one who wrote The Other Bowling Girl. Yeah, Um, I didn't like that book, but I'd be willing to give her another shot. Yeah, A Respectable Trade is is basically about slavery. You know, that's that is the respectable trade. Um, And it's it's uh, I mean, I cried a lot when I read it, but it's it's a good book. 
And then finally, I would recommend the book or the movie Bell. I said 2000, 2013 uh, film. We have talked about this book, this movie on the podcast before. I am yeah. 100% sure of that. Mm-hmm. I am obsessed with this movie. Yes. You should 100% see it regardless if you regardless if you haven't. Gugu uh, Mabatha Raw is a revelation. It's it's a great it's a great movie. So watch it. Uh, and then if you are interested in the connection between slavery and like actual mainland Britain, you can check out this is free online. It's called Slavery in the British Country House. And that is um, a collection of uh, scholarly articles about it. So I will have to check out some of these resources. And I should probably not just have that mean I'm going to watch Bell again for the 900th time. <laughs> I would not blame you if you did, though. That movie is so good, isn't it? Oh, my God. It's honestly the fact that it wasn't nominated for any Academy Awards. If you had known me that year, I was like on a fit. I watched that movie the day my daughter was born. I, that's what you bring up every time we talk about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was the la- my last movie that I didn't have to like arrange childcare, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. We would love it if you would rate, review, subscribe, and check us out around the internet on Instagram at Plot Trists or on Goodreads slash Plot Trists.